The following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. Good morning, everyone. I was kind of wondering how many people would show up to service today with the uh, snow and everything, but it actually doesn't seem like we're missing a whole lot of people. I guess we're showing ourselves to be true Chicagoans and getting in there. And um, this was nothing, right? We're expecting much worse before the end of this winter. So Um, we did have a plan to do a a child dedication for Glenn and uh, Casey Ong, but uh, because of the inclement weather, and having, uh, they, they were expecting actually a huge clan of about 20 people to come, and some of them are coming from quite far away. And so they thought it was uh, best to reschedule it for a later time. So uh, for Christopher Ong, we'll be doing that dedication at a later time, okay? And uh, as been already announced several times, we're into our Advent series right now, and we're doing that for three weeks, building up to the climax of the 25th, when we'll have that uh, afternoon service. Uh, here at church on Christmas Day itself. And so we're excited about that. And so we want to start that Advent series by looking into Genesis chapter 3, verse 1 to 24. And the series is entitled Love Reached Down. Through these three messages, we'll be exploring the great cost and the sacrifice through which God purchased for us our salvation and showed us his love. And so we want to do that by starting at the very beginning of the story of how sin first entered our world and why we need a Savior. So let's uh, first pause for a moment of prayer, and then we'll take a look at the story of the garden and original sin. Lord, we pray that you would do a work in our hearts to uh, build up the anticipation of the celebration of Christmas. Take old hearts and renew them, hearts that have been jaded by um, the repeated celebrations and by um, all the commercialism and everything else that seems to distract rather than to focus and draw our attention to the clarity of the Christian message of what it means that God sent his son to the earth to become one of us uh, in order that he might die on our behalf. And so would you awaken our hearts to the power of that message once again and may that give to us um, an enlivened faith that would cause us to put greater trust in you. For we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. The title of the message this morning is Covering Our Shame, and we're looking at Genesis chapter 3. We're not going to do the scripture reading at the beginning, but just incorporate bits of that chapter into the message itself. Um, The story of mankind begins in a garden. Genesis chapter 2, verse 8 to 9, it says, Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so Eden was this paradise created by God where the first man Adam and the first woman Eve were made to enjoy fellowship with God in this great gift that he had given them. And in the middle of this garden were two trees, One was this tree of life, and the other was this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It goes on in Genesis 2, verse 15 to 17, and it says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. 
And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. This was the situation that Adam and Eve found themselves in. A paradise given by God for their enjoyment. But in the middle of this garden was a tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the fruit of which they were forbidden to eat. And I want to say this. It's, it's very tempting to see this as almost like a cosmic gotcha game that God is playing with us. Uh, you can eat from any fruit of any tree, but just not this one. Because if you eat it, you're going to die. Um, it's, it's sort of like putting a piece of candy in front of a child and telling her, you know, Sarah, you can do whatever you want in this room. Go ahead, have fun. But if you eat this incredibly delicious candy that I put right in front of your face, you're going to get the spanking of your life, okay? So go ahead and have fun in the room. Just don't touch the candy, right? Um, well, as we walk through this passage, we're going to see that that is not an accurate portrayal of what happened that day in the garden when Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit. It wasn't like they accidentally tripped over some arbitrary line that God drew in the sand to entrap them. We're going to see that by eating that forbidden fruit, what that represented was something far darker far more problematic. Uh, it's confusing to understand exactly what is meant when it said that Adam and Eve would gain this knowledge of good and evil by eating from this forbidden tree. Now, when we look at Genesis 1 through 3, one of the things that becomes clear is Adam and Eve already seem to have some understanding of right and wrong. They had some moral compass. Um, in fact, without this knowledge of right and wrong, how could God expect them to even obey the command not to eat from this forbidden fruit, right? And so it just causes us to wonder what exactly was at stake here by eating from this forbidden fruit. Some have suggested that maybe what it meant if, is that if they ate this from this tree, that they would be all-knowing, like God is all-knowing. Others have suggested that because after they eat the fruit, they are ashamed of their nakedness, that by eating the fruit, they actually discover the knowledge of their sexuality. Um, I actually, I don't want to get into the details of it, but I don't find either of these arguments very convincing. In the end, what we can say is this. We're not really sure what exactly was going to be gained by eating from this tree. But I would argue that part of this confusion arises because the Bible itself doesn't seem to focus on what this knowledge was that they gained. Instead, the main emphasis in the story itself is on the motivation that drove Adam and Eve to eat this forbidden fruit. That's the focus of this passage. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? 
It's interesting, in trying to turn Eve's heart against God, the serpent begins not with a statement, but with a question. And in his question, he actually exaggerates what God actually told them, doesn't he? Did God really say, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Like, wow, that's really harsh. That's pretty bad. Back when I was in fourth grade, uh, my friends and I were doing this, um, I don't know, can you, do you know which one I am in this picture? This other ones. Um, I, we were doing this art project in the hallway. Our teacher sent me and my, a group of my friends out into the hallway to do this art project. And it was just a bunch of guys. And we weren't supervised. And it didn't take long before we got into some horseplay. And that quickly escalated into this fight that we had in the hallway. And before we knew it, there was paint on the carpet. There was glue on the carpet. There was glitter everywhere. It was this huge mess. And the teacher came. And I never saw her like that before. (laughs) But she was screaming her lungs out at us, yelling and saying, what in the world did you guys do? And then we had to go to the janitor's office and get a mop, and she made us get on our knees and start scrubbing all the paint and all the glue and the glitter off the carpeting. And uh, I was, you know, I was terrified. (laughs) I'd never been yelled at like that by anyone other than my parents in my life. And I thought for sure she was going to call all our parents, and I'm going to go home, and my mom was going to yell at me. And I just had this pit in my stomach. I felt horrible about what we had done. But as we were sitting there on the floor scrubbing, one of my friends uh, begins to grumble and gripe. And he starts saying stuff like, what's the the deal with her, man? And he starts talking about how, you know, like, did you ever notice that she's always harder on the boys than she is with the girls? And how some kids made a mess the other week, and she wasn't nearly as hard on them as she was with us, and... Uh, up to that moment, it had never occurred to me as this obedient Asian boy that you could question authority like that, you know, that you could actually think about a teacher in this way. And it was like this whole new world of rebellion opened up to me, you know, and I, be, I began to think like that, like, yeah, what's up with that? Who does she think she is? And, uh, never mind the inconvenient truth that we had clearly disobeyed her and made this huge mess, Uh, I think that's essentially the seed that the serpent planted in Eve's heart, suggesting to her the idea that God's word was subject to our approval, our judgment. What do you think about what God said? Do you like that? Do you like what you're hearing? That's kind of messed up, isn't it, Eve? What do you think about that? In chapter 2 to 3, it says, The woman said to the servant, We may eat from the trees in the garden. She's clarifying him, kind of correcting his mistake. But God did say, You must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You see, the serpent's strategy seems to have had its intended effect because Eve now adds her own embellishment that they were not even allowed to touch it. You could see the wheels turning in Eve's mind. 
Yeah, like what if I happen to be walking under that tree right when one of those forbidden fruits falls down and it hits me on the head? Is that still my fault? What if Adam and I are playing Marco Polo and I happen to trip and bump into one of the forbidden fruit that fell on the ground? Is God really going to take my life? What if a llama chews on one of these forbidden fruits and spits it in my face, you know? Am I going to die? You see, the poison has entered Eve's heart. God is not good. He cannot be trusted. He doesn't have my best interest at heart. He's too harsh. He's too exacting. He's too unreasonable. Sensing an opening in Eve's heart, the serpent goes for the jugular and outright contradicts God's word in his next statement. In verses 4 to 5, it says, You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God knowing good and evil. You can see from the serpent's words, it becomes clear that the motivation to eat this forbidden fruit wasn't like an arbitrary game of truth and dare. It was nothing short of outright rebellion against God himself, the invitation to reject his authority over their lives. If you eat this fruit, you will be like God. Satan's message, or the serpent's message, is very clear. God is not your friend. He's your rival. He's your enemy. God is a liar. He is blocking you from a better life that you're being denied. And I think the truth is we've all faced this test in our lives, haven't we? If we're really honest, there's something that you could really say is insulting about the kind of childlike faith that we're called to exhibit if we follow God. There's something suffocating about that kind of faith at times. That forbidden fruit, in other words, can look a lot like freedom, the salvation that we crave. If you eat it, you will be like God. Why should I just blindly accept what God says is good for me? Why shouldn't I eat the fruit and make my own decisions and find out for myself what I like and don't like and what's good for me? This then becomes the height of arrogance to think that we know better than God and we can do better for ourselves apart from him. Here's the trick that the certain, play, the certain played on them. He was correct that they would never be the same again if they ate that fruit. But he lied to them about the great cost at which they would eat that fruit. Adam and Eve's eyes were opened after they ate that fruit, but it was not this wonderful enlightenment that they were promised by the serpent. Instead, when their eyes were opened, it was open to the harsh reality of their own nakedness and shame. In verses 6 to 8, it says, When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. 
So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. You see, the moment that sin entered creation, shame came with it. On the surface, it seems like Adam and Eve were simply embarrassed because of their physical nakedness. But as I pointed out before, even after they covered themselves with these fig leaves, there was this deeper shame that wasn't resolved, right? And that's why they had to hide in the forest away from God. And I think this is an experience that every one of us understands, this shame that is associated with sin. Now, here's the interesting thing is, especially in Western culture, sin is usually more associated with guilt than it is with shame. Okay? We talk about Western culture being more of a guilt-driven culture and Eastern culture being more shame-driven. Uh, and it, the Bible itself does speak a lot about sin and guilt. When we talk about sin and guilt, we're talking about sin as wrongdoing, as law-breaking, as deserving of punishment. I mean, I'm, I'm guessing I'm probably almost every one of you have been pulled over by a cop at some point, right? And you know what a horrible feeling that is when you see the, the lights come on and you say, please not me, please not me, and he just slows down right behind you, <laughs> right? And you know that feeling inside. And from that traffic stop to that appearance in court before the judge to the fine, the ridiculous fine that you have to pay for the ticket to maybe attending traffic school, that is a very clear message of guilt. This is a guilt framework. You are guilty of speeding or whatever traffic violation. And that's a very powerful message, guilt, isn't it? It's usually powerful enough to keep you driving under the speed limit for at least a few weeks, right? Before you kind of forget, and then you start speeding again, right? So there is a clear teaching in the Bible of associating sin with guilt. You have broken God's law. But the Bible has just as much, if not even more, to say about sin and shame. And not surprisingly, in the story of original sin, the focus is not on guilt, but it's on shame. Now, when I was first learning about this dynamic between guilt and shame, I entered into that exploration thinking that guilt is where the real meat is at. You know, that's the law-breaking. That's what you've done wrong. And that shame is more of this sort of superficial thing that doesn't really jibe with what the gospel says. But the more I studied it in the Bible, the more I came to realize that actually... Maybe shame gets us closer to what the Bible is kind of trying to tell us about the consequence of sin. In many ways, shame poses a far deeper problem than guilt. Shame does begin as a social phenomenon. We're all taught shame through these moments of embarrassment when our inadequacy is exposed in front of others. You know, whether it's a, a parent that yells at you uh, shame on you. How could you do that? And we blush. And you know that feeling, right? Your cheeks get hot. 
Your palms start sweating. You feel this pit in your stomach. This is shame. I've been exposed. But here's the interesting thing about shame is it begins as this external social phenomenon, but not long into childhood, we internalize shame to the point that we can feel shame even when nobody else is in the room with us. You can blush when you're all alone, right? Uh, Guilt says, I've done something wrong. Shame says, I am wrong. There's something fundamentally wrong with me. Shame is a realization that there's something fundamentally broken in all of us. Shame is the terror that one day we will be exposed as a fraud. In shame, we hide our true selves from others, like Adam and Eve hiding among the trees in the garden. And we explored this theme at this last year's, at this, this past summer's retreat, didn't we? That was what the whole theme of the retreat was about, right? Is that when sin enters our life, it divides our soul. And we end up with this public self, this mask that we share, that we share with others of putting on airs of how we want to be perceived. And yet the truth is we have a private self that we rarely let others into, which hides the darker, more hidden places of a sinful and broken heart. Now, I want to say this. There is illegitimate shame. There is unhealthy shame. And it could be driven by all kinds of things, whether it's your neurotic perfectionism, or the voice of a parent that was always condemning, or of a, of a spouse that puts unreasonable expectations on you. There, there is this kind of unhealthy, illegitimate shame that's not founded in truth. But the Bible tells us there is also a legitimate shame that all of us experience because of sin. And it's driven by a conscience that is haunted by that sin. It's the shame that Adam and Eve felt in the garden that day. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 25, tells us Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. But that was Adam and Eve's condition before they had sinned. Now they felt the full weight of the shame of their rebellion against God. In other words, they were now naked and ashamed. Naked and ashamed. That's the human condition. I was thinking about how to paint a vivid picture of this dynamic of shame. And this incident came to mind. And we actually had to have a a family conference about it last night to get my permission from my family to see if I could share it. Because, frankly, they didn't even want me to share this story. And I said, why do you have to share that story about our family? And I said, it's for the kingdom, man. Just let me share it, you know? (laughs) So they grudgingly consented. But um, so here's the story. Uh, We took our younger kids to the doctor's office to get some routine shots that they needed, some immunizations. We thought it was going to be a very quick in-and-out visit. And then we were suddenly blindsided by the nurse who pulled my wife aside and said uh, that one of our kids has lice. (laughs) Um, Now, when I heard that news, my stomach sank to the floor, <laughs> to the floor. Lice? No. Um, 
it immediately brought me back to my childhood when we used to live in this apartment complex. And there was this kid named Paul, and his family got lice. And they tried for months to get rid of the lice, and nothing worked. And so finally, his parents shaved all of Paul's hair off. They made him bald. (laughs) It was a last-ditch effort. And for months, this kid was teased mercilessly at the bus stop. Hey, lice head, you know? Um, The truth is, as neighborhood kids, we never looked at him the same way again. It was like he was marked with a scarlet letter for the rest of his life because of that lice. And here is the honest truth that I have to admit is, as a kid back then, I remember feeling sentiments like that, like, what kind of dirty family is this (laughs) that has this kind of lice problem, you know? Um, I didn't want to touch the kid. No one wanted to sit with him in the school bus. No one ever went to his home again to play in his house. And now we were a lice family. (laughs) 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 Betty told me that when she went to buy the medicine at the drugstore, uh, the guy standing behind her saw what she was holding, and he went to a different line, (laughs) okay? And then he said that the cashier... She said that the cashier treated her like a leper, you know, was very careful not to make any physical contact as she took her credit card. Everyone in our family had to get treated. We had to wash everything in hot water. I vacuumed the house twice a day, at least once a day, sometimes twice, for over two weeks. Uh... You know, we treated all our furniture. I mean, I went overboard with this. I was going insane, okay? I was picturing these little bugs crawling all over. And no matter what I did, it didn't feel like it was enough. Frankly, after that first week, I just wanted to burn our house down and build a new house. I didn't want to live in the house anymore. I was so grossed out, okay? Some of our kids' friends were supposed to come over. We had to cancel everything. We were in quarantine mode, okay, in our house. Uh, and I'm going to give every one of you a big hug after the service. Right? Like, no one's going to want to touch our family, right? Uh, no, we're all okay now. Don't worry, okay? Um, but this is shame, isn't it? This is shame. This is the dynamic of shame in our lives. And I want to ask you, how do you deal with shame? There's something pathetic, isn't there, about the underwear that Adam and Eve made with these fig leaves, Right? And I think it's a fitting symbol for the way that we try to deal with our own shame. You know, we hear these kind of patronizing phrases like, nobody's perfect, or it's not a big deal, or maybe more recently, you just do you. You know, I don't even know what that really means, you know, but you just do you, you know. Uh, They're all well-intentioned, but are they really adequate to overcome the shame that we feel? Maybe your fig leaves are the way that you try to compensate for your inadequacy by excelling in other areas like sports or work or family life. Or maybe your strategy is simply just to deny or to minimize your sins and failures. I don't know, but in many ways, before we are met by God, all of us are like 
Adam and Eve hiding behind the trees in our fig leaves. Well, how does God deal with our shame? In Genesis chapter 3, verse 9 to 10, it says, But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, so I hid. From the moment that sin entered our world and we went into hiding, God went looking for us, like the shepherd looking for the lost sheep. In verse 11 to 13, it says, And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. What I find so interesting about this passage in chapter 3 is that every single statement, every single word, spoken by God to Adam and Eve, is in the form of a question. And and I think that's telling in and of itself. This is God in grace. This is God with an open hand, gently drawing Adam and Eve out of their fear and out of their hiding. But when he turns to the serpent, there are no questions for the serpent. There are only curses. And in verse 14 of Genesis chapter 3, it says, So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. Now, reading this sounds like God is just talking to a literal snake, right? The actual animal. And he is in one sense. But as we look at the bigger picture of the the message of the entire Bible, it becomes clear that God isn't simply cursing a literal snake, an animal. In Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, it says, The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. In other words, what the Bible is saying is that serpent that was in the garden was not just an animal. It represented Satan himself, who is the enemy of mankind and the enemy of God, always trying to bring us down. And it's in that understanding that we have to read Genesis 3, verse 15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. This is the first presentation of the gospel found all the way back in Genesis 3. This is a prophecy of the coming Messiah. God says this, through the seed of this woman, the one who is going to defeat you will come. And he says, you are going to strike his heel. This is a foreshadowing of the crucifixion. You are going to try to kill this Messiah by nailing him to the cross. But that very attempt of yours to take his life will be his greatest victory. He is going to crush your head and win victory once and for all, for all mankind. That's why Paul says in Romans 5, verse 17 to 19, For if by the trespass of the one man death reigned through that one man, 
How much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. What Paul is saying is that all of us through the sin of Adam and Eve became sinners as his offspring. But through the second Adam, Jesus Christ, all of us have the opportunity to be saved. And after this prophecy, God does something really remarkable as a further sign of grace to Adam and Eve. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 21, it says, The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. God demonstrates one final act of grace by replacing Adam and Eve's sad fig leaf underwear and covering their shame with actual clothing that he makes by killing animals and skinning them. This act would look ahead to what Jesus would do for us on the cross. Because on the cross, Jesus took our place. On the cross, Jesus experienced the nakedness and shame of a convicted criminal that we deserved so that we could be set free from that guilt and shame. See, Norman Krauss says this, Execution by crucifixion was reserved for slaves, foreigners, and people guilty of treason. It was designed to strip a person of all dignity and expose him or her to public ridicule. It was a human symbol of worthlessness, failure, and rejection, the projected rage of a shame-ridden society. Consequently, in Jesus' death, which was in large part the result of his identification with the accursed multitudes, he took upon himself their humiliation as their representative. In this way, he made his cross the liberating symbol for the oppressed. The cross intended to be a symbol of failure and humiliation became for believers the symbol of victory and a new self-identity. I want to ask you this morning, do you know the freedom and the joy of this liberation that Christ came to bring? I know many of you in this room are Asians, and we come from a faith-saving culture, don't we? Where no matter what's going on in here, you always have to put on your Sunday smiles and put your best foot forward. You always have to wear a mask. But one of the great freedoms of the cross is that Christ took all of that shame that we deserved on himself and set us free to own all of that badness because we're no longer in condemnation over it. And what an amazing and awesome freedom that is to those who truly believe that. Here's an interesting thought, is that before Adam and Eve could put on those clothings of skin that God had made for them, do you realize that they had to first take off their fig leaf underwear, right? In other words, they had to first get naked before they could be clothed. And I think in the same way, before we can receive the grace that is offered to us by God through the cross of Christ, we have to first confess our need for it. 
The promise of God is that to everyone who would acknowledge their shame and repent of their sins, he freely offers us his forgiveness. I want to close with this passage in Isaiah chapter 61, verses 7 to 10 that says this. Instead of your shame, you will receive a double portion. And instead of disgrace, you will rejoice in your inheritance. And so you will inherit a double portion in your land. And everlasting joy will be yours. I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God. For he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness as a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest and a bride adorns herself with her jewels. Let's pray. This is the wonderful message, the wonderful Christmas message that is offered to us through Jesus Christ is that all of us go through life from a very young age, being taught the power of shame. How dare you? How could you do such a thing? Shame on you. And what begins as social embarrassment quickly becomes internalized into condemnation. Um, and... It's sad, but this is the human condition, isn't it? All of us walking around with this kind of shame. And we manage that shame the best we can. We put on airs and we compensate and we minimize and we justify. and We do everything we can uh, to try to deal with that shame. But what Christ says is, um, I have dealt with your shame on the cross. I took your nakedness and shame upon myself so that you don't have to carry that burden anymore. There's something so liberating about being able to confess who you really honestly are and yet still find joy in that confession. And here is also another truth that I have to say as a pastor is even for many Christians who have attended church their whole lives, I see many of you who don't live in that freedom don't live in that joy. Religion just becomes one more layer of guilt thrown upon you, one more layer of shame to drive you deeper underground. What I want to tell you is that what we're trying to experience here by the grace of God here at ICC is a community of people that own their brokenness and say, you know what? I'm just like you. I'm not better than you. If you really know my past, and know what I've been rescued from, you would begin to understand how great a salvation is being declared in this place. And that's my hope and my prayer, is that God, through a work of faith in your heart, even as we celebrate this Christmas season, would give you the courage, the faith, to just put down that mask and come to the cross and say, God, I need what only you can provide for me. Cover my shame with your righteousness. Clothe me with the clothing of salvation. Adorn me like a bride in her jewelry, waiting for her bridegroom. Would you just pray that for a few minutes as our worship team comes to lead us in a time of response? Let's pray. Mm -hmm.